Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. From the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, I want to read a few verses that summarize Paul's ministry in Asia. I want to read another couple of verses after that that summarize the miraculous dimension of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So with that in mind, let me read the scripture. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. Them, that meaning some of the Jews in the synagogue. And they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Now, the word, the phrase, the way, will be mentioned two times in this chapter. And there's not a lot that I can share with you about that other than the fact that that is what some of them began to call the movement that was happening <clears throat> that seemed to be promoted, uh, if not in some territories, led by Paul. They called it the way. No more to that than that. Just be aware that that is one of the names that they are using, one of the titles. So Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went in for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's just kind of a summary. And then we get more detail about his ministry in this area as we read the rest of the chapter. But in summary, he went to the synagogue, even though in the last time he did that, he got rejected and got so disgusted with them, he said, from now on I'm going to the Gentiles. He nevertheless did return to the synagogue and tried his hand again. And he had better results this time. Two years he was able to stay and teach and had some converts. And then we go to the next little cluster of verses, uh, verse 11, and we read another little summary. In God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. And that's just not talking about one specific incident as much as it is, once again, a summary of some of the miraculous things that happened under Paul's ministry. So we have a summary of how effective his ministry was. We have a summary of the, some of the miracles that happened. And one of the things I want to deal with in that second little passage is I had told you when we began the study in the book of Acts that we would be running across some scriptures that it would be necessary for us 
to discern the difference between two words, normative and informative, or another way of saying that is prescriptive and descriptive. Now, the number of times that I've said that, then I hope you're becoming familiar with what I'm trying to say. And I will define those terms again. Both ways of saying it say exactly the same thing. It just depends on what you want to use. Normative, meaning that when we read it, we are to assume that we ought to be doing the same thing because, after all, it's in the Bible. Informative, meaning we don't necessarily have to do it that way. It's just informational. That's what they did. It does not imply that we ought to do that. We have a few examples thus far in the book of Acts of us necessarily separating normative from informative. And this is probably one of the most important passages in the book of Acts that we need to grapple with this morning. So hang with me for just a minute. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Notice that. Mentally highlight that. These were not to be the kind of ways that God would, would do things that we are to say he ought to do it that same way every time. They were extraordinary. Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him. And we probably get a mental picture in our mind that people were bringing aprons and bringing handkerchiefs and they were wiping it on Paul's sweat and running away and saying, I've got to get this to the sick people while the virtue is still there. Almost like it's a magical thing going on. Why would we think in those terms? Because if we've been around Pentecost very long, we probably have seen something similar to that. But it's highly likely that these people who were taking these handkerchiefs and aprons that had been in contact with Paul may have been taking some of the things he used as a, as a matter of being a tent maker. And it does not imply here that Paul was consenting and approving of what these people did. Keep in mind, these people were in Ephesus. Keep in mind that Ephesus was heavily involved in magical things. That was these people's background. That's one of the most important things to understand about this passage of Scripture is their mindset, the way they were raised, the things that they were exposed to. So they, were, they liked magical stuff. And they are the ones that came up with the idea, if we could just get some of his sweat rags that he used, some of the aprons he wore when he was doing tent making, we can run around and we can probably get people healed. Well, for some strange reason, God cooperated that with that for a time and a season. But you will notice it never did become a normal practice of the church as revealed anywhere in Scripture or anywhere in our historical writings about the early church. It's just something that happened at that time. On the basis of those things, we should not expect to duplicate that and on the basis that of, of saying, well, it's in the Bible. There's a lot of things that are in the Bible that we don't necessarily 
duplicate. Jesus spat in the dirt and played around with it until he made some clay out of it and took the clay and put it on the man's eyes. And we don't have a big movement today of people making spit mud balls because Jesus did. How many can be thankful for that? So see, that's the difference between being normative and informative. We read what did happen, but it doesn't mean you go do likewise. Now the reason I bring this out is because we have our own quirks in this age and in our culture. Part of our quirks that we have is we like to have things that we can touch. It makes us feel better when we can have tangible things associated with the supernatural. So with that kind of a mentality, with that kind of a proclivity, it is understandable why some people feel more comfortable having a sweat rag rubbed on an anointed person to run and give it to somebody else and expect a healing to happen because it gives us something tangible to transfer. But I hope that all of you are on the same page with me that the power of God transcends all of the tricks and the amulets and the charms and the props that we can come up with. Those do not make God's healing power more effective. They never have, they never will. Sometimes God honored that because like in these people in their ignorance, God chose to honor that for a moment, but it was never allowed become a common practice in the church. So therefore, I share that with you because if you come to me and you have the idea that you want me to anoint a hanky so you can go put that under your partner's pillow so they will get saved, I will be very awkward and very hesitant to think that that's going to do anything more than our prayers. I'm just not into the props, I'm into God. I'm into him doing it. And these props and tan touchy, tangible things have uh, attached themselves to Pentecost for some reason. It's because we've allowed it to, but we have to transcend that in knowing God is bigger. If, if I can pray for somebody here and they can be healed in another location, uh, that tells me the power of God transcends all of the little other connecting things that we try to associate with it to make it happen. So that would be one of those passages that I would urge you to take it as informative. That is exactly what they did, but not normative, not prescriptive. That's not what God expects us to do. Otherwise, if it is, we have failed miserably a great percentage of the time because that has not become an every time practice. So why are we being so selective and saying once in a while let's pull that one out of the bag and try that one? Well, if it's prescriptive, we'd better be doing it every time. And if it's not, we don't need to be doing that. But I can, you can, can tell you what you can do, and that is you can expect God, because he can do anything, to do special miracles through you. He can do things that nobody ever did before. He is creative. He's not bound to just the things that are recorded in history and in the Bible. He can do fresh and new things through you. And then you can have a lot of people trying to emulate you for the next several centuries because they thought that's the way God does things.
Now also keep in mind the nature of this town Ephesus being a very uh, magic-oriented culture that the phrase Ephesian writings became a common phrase in that language that referred to incantations and spells that were written down in documents. So when somebody say, do you have any Ephesian writings? They knew they were talking about magical spells and a book of incantations. They knew what that was. And the very word Ephesian referring to Ephesus further proves that that was a very notable characteristic of that community. That's part of why Paul's ministry in Ephesus is so fascinating and so unique. Because as we've read, studied the ministry of Paul thus far in the book of Acts, his ministry has largely been the spoken word. There's a couple of exceptions to that, but largely... He goes in, he challenges, he teaches, he preaches, he goes to the synagogue, he holds Bible class, he started a school. And this is a stark departure from the style of Paul's ministry because we read in this passage, it's not so much just the preaching as there is a large increase in the power encounters that Paul is now having. It wasn't just a matter of intellectually persuading people like he did on Mars Hill when he, when he went there and he decided to try and enter in with the philosophers and, and debate with them. He didn't come here and try to have intellectual arguments or debates with these people. He came to have head-to-head -head power encounters with them. This is a place that is bent on magic, and I come to bring you the power of God. You know, sometimes, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, sometimes the power of God is a whole lot more effective than all the intellectual prowess you think you need to have. And I said that's tongue-in-cheek. Maybe that's all the time, right? And interestingly enough, just before I came to church today, I read the testimony of uh, Ken Horn, who has been uh, a writer and editor with the Pentecostal Evangel for many years. And he was sharing that there was a, an agnostic. Now, if you don't know what an agnostic is, he's kind, of a, he's kind of a halfway between an atheist and a believer. An agnostic doesn't say there is no God. An agnostic just says, I just doubt I haven't seen the evidence and I have my doubts. But he's not on a campaign to convince anybody God doesn't exist. He just says, I'm just not convinced. So he had a young man who was an agnostic. And uh, as Ken was writing this story, he said, I, I felt like God spoke to me to share the very simple plan of the gospel, the plan of salvation. And he said, I really didn't want to do that because he said, God, I don't understand. He said, I have met this guy in debate at every level, and I have done an excellent job of defending your word. And I, he said, I feel like I've, I've won every debate we've had. And he said, should that be enough? And God urged him, I just want you to lay all that debate and, and uh, apologetics aside, and I just want you to tell this young man the plain, simple plan of salvation. So the next time he was encountering this man, he said, he said, let's lay all that stuff aside for a minute. Can I just have a moment of your time? 
And he explained to him the simple plan of salvation. You know, we're, we're lost. We're sinners. And God knew we needed somebody to be able to atone for our sins. And sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross. He, through the shed blood of Jesus, for, cleanses us. We're forgiven. And, and by, the, by the sacrifice of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, we, be, we become reconciled to God. So, you know, I, I've just kind of filled in the blank of what he would have said. Just the simple plan of salvation. And this young man who is an, an agnostic and had debated at length with this guy, he said, I've never heard that before. And he got saved. There's just something about letting the power of God do the work for you. And whenever God has repeatedly told people, as we've seen in the book of Acts, just take the good news. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. And I know that you may from time to time come up against somebody you're trying to, to bone up. You're trying to, to get to the point where you, you've got your arguments watertight. And no matter what kind of an objection they come up with, you're ready and you're primed. And I'm all for being prepared. I really am. But you know, at some point, it might be nothing more than just sharing the simple truth and letting the Holy Spirit take over and do that. It can be a whole lot simpler than we make it sometimes. The power of God trumps all the intellectualism we could possibly have. So I've broken this down into three encounters. I said we had a summary of his ministry, but now we're going to go back and break it down into the details of his ministry. Encounter number one is the seven sons of Siva. And really, we don't see in this story Paul directly having an encounter with them, but there is a power encounter. The seven sons of Siva... Uh, they were, I, I guess, maybe self-appointed exorcists. It was their ministry. They were Jews. They were not Christians. And we find it interesting that being in a pre-New Testament uh, uh, relationship with God, that they felt that they had the power and the authority to cast out demons. So that's what they dedicated themselves to. Siva was a Jewish priest in Ephesus. And he had seven sons who were following after him. And they appointed themselves, as I said, to have a ministry of exorcism. So what's not really told in detail here, but is clearly implied is that while Paul was having these encounters with people, uh, the seven sons of Siva saw what was happening. And they decided that the common denominator in demons being cast out was the use the uh, implementation of the name of Jesus. They analyzed this. Uh, <clears throat> they saw Paul having success that they were not having. And when they began to deconstruct Paul's ministry to see what made him so effective, the first thing I want you to notice is they didn't go away with the idea is what we need is more handkerchiefs and aprons. They weren't impressed. We're impressed by that. They were not impressed with it. 
What they went away thinking is what we need, what's missing from our ministry is using the name of Jesus in the process. They saw that repeatedly. They saw it prominently enough. That was their logical conclusion. Now, keep in mind that the way Luke's described this is that the uh, seven sons of Seba were not the only exorcists. Luke says there were a number of Jews who considered themselves exorcists. Then he zeroes in on the seven sons of Seba among those. So they were not the only ones. And as they watched, they, they analyzed, they came away, and they said, I think we have stumbled on the secret of, the, of his success. Now all they needed was a demon-possessed victim to try and apply this to. So they were able to chase one up, I suppose in Ephesus, in this town of magic and spells and incantations, it wouldn't be hard to find you a nice demon-possessed guinea pig somewhere. So they found one, and then Luke moves right to their efforts to try and perform the exorcism on them. So I'll start reading in verse 13. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches... I command you to come out. That was all of the Jewish exorcists that did that. Now he zeroes in on the seven sons of Siva. says the seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this like the rest of the exorcists. Now one day, I don't know what kind of luck they were having, but it, it looks like they continued to do this repeatedly. One day when they were doing this, the evil spirit spoke back to them and said, now, wait a minute. I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? Talk about a rebuke. Talk about humiliating them. I know Jesus and I respect him. I know Paul. I respect him. I don't have a clue who you think you are. And the Bible says that that man who had that evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them and gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's a horrible mental vision. It wasn't working like it was supposed to work. Because I think you're way ahead of me. You've heard this story enough times. It's not about knowing the name of Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. And there's so many ways to apply that to us today. It's not about going to church. It's about knowing Jesus. It's not about knowing how to say a prayer. It's about knowing Jesus. It's not about being willing to come and worship with everybody else. It's about knowing Jesus. In other words, you can't just associate yourself with it and go through the actions. You have to have that personal relationship. And the seven sons of Siva found that out the hard way. They thought all you had to do is say the name. But they didn't know Jesus. 
Now there's a second encounter that happens, and that is the power of God now in this next passage meets head-on directly face-to-face the power of hell. And, and the most fascinating thing about this is how God used this to reap the positive benefits of the clumsy, clumsy efforts of these misguided upstarts. Verse 17, when, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks, what I just read to you about the seven sons of Siva, when this became known to, the, known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now let me deal with the last sentence first. The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It is interesting that Luke specifically takes notice of the growth of the word of the Lord. We might consider it completely sufficient to report the number of souls being converted because we we like to do that. We're, we're, We're numbers people. But what Luke recorded was more important than how many people got saved. He recorded something we don't record when we have revivals and campaigns. He recorded that essentially behind the scenes what you did not readily see is the word of the Lord grew and it grew stronger. We don't give a lot of thought to that. Almost every revival or campaign or crusade or meeting that we've ever had, at least in our day and age, there is a report of how many salvations, how many rededications, how many people attended, but we never have a report saying, but the word of the Lord grew in power. Because I think a lot of times that doesn't happen. You know, it's pretty easy in our evangelistic culture, our revival culture, our crusade culture, our special event culture to get people to walk an aisle, say a prayer, we give them a pamphlet, we record this many people were saved. But what happened to those people? How does the word of the Lord grow and become more powerful? How does that happen? I'll tell you one of the ways it happens is whenever it gets down into the lives of the people and they go and they also spread the good news and they become discipled and they truly have a conversion experience that they, they follow the Lord. And so what, Paul, what Luke was writing was more than what could be written at the very time people got saved. He observed what was going on for two years. And he said, I can tell you the result of this is the word of the Lord grew stronger in that community. So if you have a church where 20 people got saved and years later they're not there anymore, I don't know that the word of the Lord grew and got stronger in that church. What we're really after is getting people discipled after they get 
allegedly saved. Now, the second thing that I want to deal with in this passage is it indicates to me what true repentance is all about. It's said that the word of the Lord grew in power and they begin to burn their junk. The literature that they burned was most likely the equivalent of, of magazine books, magazines and books that we would have. Of course, they didn't have magazines, but I'm just trying to kind of get a cultural equivalent here. It would also, the literature they had, would be uh, a collection of writings that would be magical spells and formulas that they would purchase and they would study and practice. And sometimes they would have magical spells and formulas written on papyrus that would be rolled up and put in a little tube and a, a little string, rope or something, chain, whatever, to tie to that so they could wear this around their body. So everywhere they went, they had their spells and their incantations with them at all times. And when they got saved, this was the garbage that they grabbed and took off of their body and threw it in the fire. They didn't need that anymore. They didn't want that anymore. It was meaningless. That was everything they put their hope and their dreams and their safety and trust in, in that stuff. And that's the first thing they got rid of when they got saved. They don't need that anymore. It was the mere presence of this amulet, so to speak, that they believed gave them power as well. It wasn't like they had to, at the very moment, open it up, read it. It's just the fact they had it with them made them feel powerful. It is estimated to be worth 50,000 drachmas. A drachma is estimated to be worth a day's wages. Now let me see if I can bring that into our culture and our age. Two ways I know we can convert that into modern day equivalents. The first is how are we going to establish what a day's wages is? Uh, I don't think $50 a day would be considered appropriately a day's wages now. But it, if, if some people do make $50 a day, it would be considered the lower level of poverty. At $100 a day, you would still fall below poverty. But at $50 a day and 50,000 days, that's $2.5 million at extreme poverty level that was thrown into the fire. If we boost that up to $100 a day, that a family would be hard-pressed to live well on $100 a day, you would still be at $5 million. So I'm going to assume, I'll take, I'll take the lower number, because I'm going to assume that this culture, these people, they would work all day, and they wouldn't make a lot of money, and they wouldn't have a, a lot of toys, and, and uh, dining out in restaurants. They just have a humble house that they would live in. They'd heat it with a 
fire and they would just try and find shade in the summer. It was very primitive living. So let's say at the lower end of this, at the poverty end, they, what these people took off their, 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 their necks and went home and gathered up and brought and threw it on the fire and burned it and got rid of it all together. They put uh, at least two and a half million dollars. That's a conservative estimate of what they had taken their precious hard-earned money and invested in this stuff. Like I said, that was their God. They had invested in this and they threw it all away. Now there's another way for me to convert that uh, into our modern day and that is to calculate uh, how many years is equal to 50,000 work days. That's 137 years. If you took your paycheck of every day that you worked and you accumulated all that money, that would represent 137 years of work days, not counting Sunday, Saturday, holidays. You worked for 137 years and these people collectively threw it all away. I think we got the point. The scrolls being burned represented one thing only, the sacrifice of the owners. The financial loss was theirs and nobody else's. And to them, the financial loss was totally meaningless compared to the spiritual gain. It takes spiritual courage. It takes moral courage to destroy the wicked and ungodly investments of your past life. And that kind of courage only comes from true heartfelt repentance. You can't do it if you haven't had true repentance in your life. You cannot throw away that much money that you have invested in unless God has truly changed you. I have a couple of stories. I read the account, it's been many years back, but I will not forget it as long as I remain sane. Which is questionable how long that's going. A man ran an adult bookstore. He got saved. And he announced he was going to burn the entire contents of the store. Take a guess at how much he was invested in his store. 100,000, 200,000, I don't know what he had invested in it when you got magazines and, and at that time, videotapes. Uh, I don't know what it takes to invest in that, but it wasn't $10, you know, I had to know that. And so the news people got a hold of this and they came, they wanted to see, this guy is hauling out his inventory, he's putting it out in the parking lot, he's setting fire to everything. The only reason anybody can do that is because they truly have a change of heart. They realize that, that it doesn't make any difference. It's the old spirit of Judas that stands there and says, you could have sold this and you could have given the money to the church. But you know what the problem is? Whose hands is that going to end up in? It wasn't worth it to him to recoup his investment for the damage he was going to do by letting that get out to anybody else. No, sir, the sin stops right here. I'm not putting it in anybody else's hands. I'm going to burn it. I'm done with it. 
There's also the story of a man who's been in the news in the past uh, 30, 40 years, Larry Flint. He was the famous publisher of adult magazines. There was a time when Larry Flint met with Ruth Stapleton Carter, sister-in-law to President Jimmy Carter. And she witnessed to Larry Flint and he made an open public proclamation of faith. One of the biggest peddlers of pornography, smut in the world. And she led him to the Lord. And he publicly confessed and admitted that he's now a born-again Christian. He wrote about being on his airplane shortly after that and being baptized in the Holy Spirit and the entire flight of the airplane. He said he spent the entire time speaking in tongues. And as the story goes on, uh, he did not... I mean, he, be, he came being very generous with his, with his fortune and began to give money to good causes and everything, but, but he didn't make it. Let me cut to the chase here. He didn't make it. He, he decided he was going to go ahead and publish his magazine. One of the magazines that he published at the time was called Hustler, and he has said, now I'm going to hustle for God. So he did not make, he did not make that break from his former life. And he veered off from his proclamation of faith and continued on in his uh, uh, smut industry. And he, he, the end of the story of Larry Flint didn't come out at all like the end of the story of these people in Ephesus. He made a good start, but he did not follow through. It's a shame when people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they do not have the moral courage to draw a line in the sand and say, whatever I used to be, it's dead, it's over, it's gone, it's done, it's not going to be anymore. And those people who try to bring what they used to have into their current life and profession of Jesus Christ. That's dirty salvation. That's a, that's a compromised relationship with Jesus. There have been actors and actresses who were former uh, uh, adult movie stars and they got saved, and they walked away from their rather lucrative careers because their repentance was real. And then there's others who tried to bring Jesus into their career. He used to be a, just nothing but a pornography actor. Now you're a Christian pornography actor. And everybody understands and knows the, the, the foolishness of trying to bring the past into the present. The past is gone. That's real repentance. You know, it may cost a person a lot to walk away from their past. But on the other hand, that's all a, a, a perspective, isn't it? It's a matter of perspective. Because what does it really cost <laughs> when you're exchanging that for eternal life? What does it really cost? You know, what does it gain a man if he, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world? 
and loses his own soul. So you can, you can turn that around. You can flip that around. And that is, whoever trades in the world for Jesus makes the better bargain every time. Now, the second thing I want to pull out of that is verse 18 says, many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. Oh, there's, there's a hidden gem in this passage. The magic industry was shrouded in secrecy. So if you had your formulas, you had your incantations, uh, it, was, it was highly important you guarded that. Those are secrets. If you tell the secrets, they lose their power. So they would have them, they would study them, they might memorize them, they might use them, but they can't tell you. It's all in the secrecy. And I find it so powerful and so fascinating that when these people came to an encounter with Jesus Christ, suddenly there was nothing secret in their life anymore. There was no power in the secrecy. The, secrecy, the, the hidden things are now exposed to light. And when it says many of those who believe now came and openly confessed, they were telling it all. They were hiding nothing anymore. That's what true repentance does to people. It brings us to an open confession of those things that used to be dark secrets of your past. You can't continue to defend the wrong and make excuses for your past. You have to come to an open confession and make a clean break with what it used to be. Now it's an open book. Power encounter number three. And then give me just a couple minutes. It's just a paragraph or two, and I will be done with this sermon. There was a man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith, and he owned and operated his own idle manufacturing business, and it was very lucrative. This is something I don't know how we can relate to this because we don't see any idle manufacturing plants here in the Quad Cities that is doing a great business. But in Ephesus, it was. It was doing, that was such a huge industry. There were many idol makers, and they were all getting filthy rich off of it. So whenever this revival breaks out and these people are burning their garbage and Demetrius stands and says, this is not good for business. Not only are these people not going to be repeat customers, but they're going to convince others and this is getting out of hand. So he got together with the local idol makers union and he told them, we have to do something to protect our livelihood. Our, our business, our, our livelihood is being taken, snatched out from underneath of us. We must do something to stop this trend. He pled to them based on the loss of revenue. And furthermore, the second argument he made is you must, people, you must take into consideration the goddess Artemis. We have been made stewards of this temple. And if we don't stand up for the goddess Artemis, we're going to do great dishonor to her. It is our duty as worshipers of Artemis to stand up and defend her good name. So if the money wasn't enough, it was a religious obligation that they had. He was able to stir them up. And a lot of other people to where they created this massive riot in Ephesus. 
And the people seized a couple of co-workers of Paul's named Gaius and Aristarchus. And uh, don't know what they were going to do to them, but it didn't look like it was going to be good. And Paul was trying to calm them down and speak to them because he's a preacher. Anytime there's a crowd, he, he wants to preach. So he's looking for an opportunity to get to share the good news, but he can't get the people to settle down because they've already reached this mob mentality. And then they began this chant. The citizens that are gathered here are in a mob frenzy, and they somebody's, you know how in, in our day and age you get to people and then they start going, USA, 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 kill the president, USA. You know, it, so you get these. And so these people got together and they, did, they, they made this chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they picked it up. And everybody is shouting. And the Bible says for two hours, Paul cannot get a word in. They're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk finally steps in. I don't know what he did to get them settled down, but he got them calmed down enough to talk to them and take control and disperse the rioters and told the Ephesians, now, you're safe. Uh, either Artemis is big enough to take care of, her, of herself or she's not. She doesn't need your help. Well, she wasn't, but that's beside the point. He convinced them. And said, uh, he mentions Artemis, according to their legend, fell out of heaven and landed in Ephesus. And they are divinely appointed guardians of the temple. But Artemis can take care of Artemis. Go home. So they settled down and they went home. And God used the clerk to disperse that very volatile situation. And one thing we can learn from that is that it was proof that God was still there protecting Paul. I don't know how things are going to come about sometimes, but when God promises he's going to protect you, he'll find a way every time. And so this, this volatile situation was diffused and I come away with just a, a, a four points that I think we can learn from this entire thing we've studied today. And, and number one is that is miracles and powerful, powerful manifestations of God should become a normal part of our ministry. It's not just the teaching. It's not just the preaching. We should expect God to move in powerful, miraculous ways. You should expect God to move in miraculous ways in your life. You should step out in faith and give God an opportunity to work miraculously through you. Because he can do that and he will do that. You just have to give him the opportunity. Number two, the name of Jesus is only powerful and effective for those who know Jesus. Number three, rest assured, the power of the gospel is stronger than all the powers of hell. 
And number four, the preaching of the truth will simultaneously make converts and enemies. Because in this story, we have seen the massive number of converts because of the power encounter with God. And at the same time, we saw the number of enemies that arose because of it. And you can preach, and you can find a few converts. You can witness to people, and you will make some people converts, and you will make some people enemies when you're doing it. Just get used to it. That's the way it happens. That's the dynamic of it. You can't focus on the ones that got away. You can't focus on the ones you've made angry. You have to focus on the converts. God will take care of the enemies. Worship team, would you come?